Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar, and his co-host, Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Together, Bob and Scott investigate many of the hidden secrets of playing good tennis, as well as offering their expert commentary on professional tennis. Welcome listeners, Bob Chevier, back with Outside the Lines with my co-host Scott Shannon, and want to wish, wish all of you a happy new year and hope you had a ha happy holiday season. And in terms of pro tennis, we're just uh, about, well, three weeks away, let's say, from the Australian Open. So there's going to be some exciting tennis back on your TV screens very soon. We, we've got a pretty interesting take, I think, on a subject that's not talked about that much in tennis and yet is extremely important. And it all comes from, I was telling Scott, my grandson, he likes cooking. He got a cookbook for the holidays. And instead of dividing things up like meats, pastas, fish, etc., his cookbook was divided up by texture, crunchy, chewy, aerated, creamy, fluid, fatty, and so on. And he made something. He made some uh, brownies for the Christmas Eve family dinner the other night. They were in the chewy section. And the reason I find this interesting is because almost all tennis books or discussions are about the five basic strokes, forehand, backhand, serve, volley, and overhead. But texture reminded me a lot about the feel of a particular shot, which is rarely discussed. Scott, when I brought this up to you, what was your first reaction? Um, I thought that it was very difficult to get people to understand what they were supposed to be doing when they were on the tennis court, whether it's taking a lesson or playing a match or whatever, uh, in terms of feeling what they were doing um, with the racket and with their stroke. Uh, and very often you would hear uh, comments about players that say, well, they really play with good feel. And I think what was being observed there was kind of the softness of their movements and the dexterity of their hands. Um, and usually not like in a big power shot, like a big ground stroke or whatever, but more in terms of a drop shot, certain kinds of volleys, um, off speed shots, maybe some slices. Um, but, you know, the, the players were very often so interested in like what they were doing with the ball. They forgot to experience like how the stroke felt uh, itself while they were doing it and staying in the process. So you were saying when we spoke about this a bit before going live, that for you, the number one area 
and I agree with this, where feel comes into play is where the body meets the racket. In other words, the grip tension. Could you talk a little bit more about your feelings on the grip tension and how they relate to the different strokes? For example, how the grip tension on a volley might be much different than that on a backhand ground stroke, for example. Yeah, I mean, you have a different uh, exchange of energy when it comes to a ground stroke versus a volley. Uh, and, you know, all the other strokes, the serve um, and the ground strokes, you know, versus the volleys, um, you are basically creating an impact when you volley versus ground strokes, you're creating a throwing motion and carrying the ball uh, to the target. So almost by definition, there's going to be a looseness to the ground strokes that is not the same on a volley. And the volley, then you'll have a little bit of a firmer grip on the racket. But the problem is that some people squeeze the death out of the grip, thinking they're supposed to be tight on it. And now they have no feel because they're squeezing and they have no dexterity because they've locked up these muscles with tension. Um, and sometimes people are squeezing the grip, especially on the volleys, because the ball's coming and hitting off center on the racket and when you're hitting a volley versus a ground stroke, if you hit it off, if it's off center, you really get a lot of torque in there. And so people very often will react by squeezing and holding the racket tighter to try to dampen that instead of, as you mentioned when we were discussing, hey, let's look at the ball better and let's match up to it and get the center set up because then you don't really have to hold it all that tightly to get the stroke to function. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, if we look at our five basic strokes, forehand, backhand, serve, volley, and overhead, uh, the serve and overhead probably have the loosest grips. Would, would you say they're exactly the same or one is, even is a little looser than the other? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't really differentiate between those two. Um, I think they're both basically the same mechanical motion. Preparation is is different because you're not holding the ball. Uh, but I think in terms of the motion that you make when you deliver the racket to the ball is the same throwing motion um, as on your serve, even though your contact point may be in a different in a different place which you know depends on what you're trying to do with uh with the overhead um in terms of the contact point because sometimes on the overhead you're going to hit a slice or a topspin uh and not just hit it flat uh and then certainly you're doing that with serves and so the contact points are changing but i think the looseness is pretty uh comparable on uh, both of those strokes mm-hmm I also think it's sort of, it's like the second place you look when you you or I would speak about body tension would be 
your back muscles, like your shoulders where they enter into your back, if those are tight and someone is squeezing, they're actually slowing everything down on the serve and overhead rather than having that free release of the muscles. Uh, how aware are would you say it's it's sort of one where most of your students aren't that aware of that particular part of the body needing to stay nice and loose during the stroke? I would say, yeah, that's very difficult for uh, students to um, hone in on that particular area in terms of getting it relaxed. Probably takes, uh, you know, some work at just focusing on that and just trying to, you know, get like a full uh, relaxation movement working, um, you know, from your from your shoulders that would then translate down into the into the middle of your back and whatever. Uh, that's how I think I would tackle that in terms of getting people to get in touch with that. Yeah. Now the ground strokes are sort of intermediate level of tension between volleys and serves and overheads, except I think too often people don't appreciate that a slice backhand is much more like a volley and a, and a topspin backhand is much more like a forehand ground stroke in, in terms of tension level. Would you agree with both of those takes on it? Um, well, on the first the first part with the the slice on a backhand or a forehand ground stroke slice, you're coming down the back of the ball and imparting side spin or backspin, and to varying degrees on the ground stroke versus the volley, you're doing you're basically doing the same thing. You're not very often trying to hit a topspin volley that's a whole different stroke and it's a big stroke more like a ground stroke than it is like a volley so you take it out of the air but you hit it like a ground stroke right um but uh yes i would agree that the you know the 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 movement of the racket head um you know colliding with the ball is uh, very similar with the slice um uh, ground stroke and whatever to what you generally do with your volleys the um, the second part was um, you were talking about hitting it with topspin off the backhand. Yes, if you are like I have a few students now who have both a topspin backhand and a slice backhand. Right. And one of them, her coach has been telling her, "Don't slice it at all. That's the chicken's way of playing tennis. <laughs> Just hit your backhand." And There's an awful lot of chickens on the tour then. <laughs> there are tons of chickens on the tour. <laughs> and there was a period in tennis, I think it was just pre-Federer, when that was sort of the way that people thought of a backhand. You had to come over the ball or you were going to get chewed up because you weren't doing enough. But Federer began the whole trend towards increasing variety by changing the spins but also the depth and speed of the balls his little short slice backhand that when he was not going for a winner it would skid low inside the service line force his opponent to come up from well below the net 
and Federer right in position, ready to hunt down that next ball and pass him. So um, I'm trying to, in any case, get my student to be a little bit more, I don't know if you remember Steffi Groff when she was playing, but she sliced 95% of her backhands, yep. except if she played Martina, who was coming to the net all the time, then she and had she'd bring topspin. out this topspin that was yeah. actually really good, but she yeah. didn't use it most of the time. She yeah, had it. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, yeah, I mean, the slices, um, you know, you can go back, you know, in, in history and see some of the most amazing slices like Ken Rosewall hit a slice that was almost like flat, but it had so much speed on it, but he was famous for that one particular shot. And um, then I saw, I saw like um, Billie Jean King play Virginia Wade, I think like in the semis or finals at the, uh, at the U S open, maybe before it became the open, it was mm -hmm. just the nationals. And they would hit like 30 slices back and forth each other on the grass. <laughs> right. Right. And, and it was very effective, you know, I mean, on that grass, that ball was really low then even, you know, so much more bouncing low than, uh, than now because they've changed the uh, firmness of the court and the, and the, and the grass a little bit. Um, yeah, so the slice is definitely a um, a way of moving the ball with control and getting the ball to do a certain thing off the ground that can limit your opponent. Absolutely. And it has great disguise for a drop shot, too. You're actually setting up to force your opponent to cover much more of the court if they see you getting ready for a slice. So I th thought it would be fun, Scott, to say we have those five basic shots, <clears throat> forehand, backhand, serve, volley, and overhead. And we have the basic food groups on a restaurant menu, appetizer, salad, main course, side dish, and dessert. And I think... Most of our students, if we ask them, which one of the strokes is your main course, which is the one that's giving you the most energy and making you the most dangerous on the court, I think most of them would say it's their forehand. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they think that... Uh... They, very often they develop that shot like in and 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 they forget about the, sometimes the other shots so they get a big forehand and they try to live off the forehand till they play with someone who can keep it away from their forehand or whatever but i mean certainly they're they're not using what they really should have as their main course they're not using that one and you know what that one is right <laughs> Well, we were talking earlier, but I'm going to get you to, I hope, change your mind. What we decided earlier, folks, was that the serve is the main course. That's the one that with one swing can get you a free point when you're down break point, can set you up for controlling the rest of a rally if you get started the right way. But here's what I'm going to ask you to consider, Scott. When you were 
at your peak, I would claim that it was your volley that was your main course and your serve was a way to get you up there, but you were paying the rent with your volleys. And I think at the best wins in my career, I was playing a similar type game as uh, just like you getting to the net and using volleys. What, can I get you to reconsider that one? Well, I mean, I guess to some degree, um, I guess we need to lump them together and just say that the serve and approach or, you know, then and then it becomes a volley, serve and volley, because you don't always volley when you uh, come in behind your serve. But um, most of the time you probably will. Um, so it's it's kind of a one two punch. So I think they're very equal because they're dependent on each other. It's very hard to go in and be making good volleys and be dominating at the net if your serve hasn't kind of set you up. So um, but if your serve is good, but you come in and your volley is very uh, haphazard or hit or miss, then you don't really get the final result. So it might say that, you know, you need the combination of those two things Um you know, to create that main course, you mm -hmm. know, which I, which I like to do, you know, I didn't really like to stay back and hit like a million balls from the baseline and then win the point from attrition, you know, it was like, you know, just not in my mentality. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So, no, that was not your game. But um, yeah, so I would kind of just like have those be hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So what what shot of yours was much more like dessert when you were playing? Uh, drop shot, I think. I had a pretty good drop shot. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, yes. I, and, and, and I, you know, you couldn't use it too much on hard courts, but I mean, I really used it a lot on, on, on hard, true and clay. And then on grass, very often when you get into the net and you get like, a ball coming to you and you hit like a little drop volley, that grass just deadened the ball. It was like almost going to be a winner if you hit it, you know, if you hit it well, it was going to be uh, uncoverable for your opponent. You know, you're so right. I'm, I'm thinking back, you just mentioning volleying short. Uh, in the men's 35 grass one year, I played in the second round, the guy who had won the... 35 indoor hardcourt championship. Mm. So obviously indoor hardcourt, he had an excellent net game. Mm -hmm. I won the first set because I was hitting drop volleys and he was hitting nice hardcourt volleys deep <laughs> back at deep me. Yeah. And I was able to get off a few passing shots and I beat him. And then it's as if he stole my game. He started hitting drop volleys. <laughs> and he came back and won the match. But he he was actually learning as it was going, like, oh, my gosh, I have to do something a little different out here. And um, <laughs> I thought I could have had him. And then the um, interestingly, we had like four straight days of rain. And Peter Bromley, our old friend, had to play him in the quarterfinals on an indoor hard court where they moved the match. Oh. And... This guy showed why he was national indoor hardcourt champion. It it wasn't really that close. He dominated that match. Uh-huh. Too bad. I should have had him on the grass, though. Oh, my God. That's funny. I'm going to have to talk to Bromley about that. Yes. <laughs>
who I just saw last week. In person? Yeah. In Florida. Remember I went to Florida? Oh, yeah, that's right. We you were, were right doing a little Palm golf. We were, yeah, we were right near Palm Beach. So we went uh, and saw his club, which is magnificent. Uh, the Palm Beach Bath and Tennis is literally adjacent to Mar-a-Lago uh, compound. I mean, you could throw a stone uh, onto the other property. So it was pretty wild. But, okay. Uh, wow. So, uh, yeah, Palm Beach is quite a place. Hmm. Well, I, I think I better put off my visit then down there because I couldn't get that close to Mar-a-Lago without, yeah, without, yes. without catching catching something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that we should touch a little bit on some of the things that go into um, helping a player uh, develop feel in terms of an overall general manner uh, in terms of their game uh, and the strokes. And I, I would always have people um, hold on to their racket, hold on to their grip. And I would take my hand and grab the end of the, the, of the racket on the other side. And I would say, okay, I'm going to pull this out of your hand. And I want you to let me pull on it and just let the racket head barely come out of your hand. So they would have to hold the racket, but they'd have to release the grip enough to just let it slide out. And then I told them, hold the grip and hold it just enough so that I can't get it out of your hand. And they would then change the tension on it a little bit. And if they were doing it correctly, um, they would do just enough tension. And I was no way that I could pull it out. And guess what? They did not have to squeeze the grip. Exactly. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm squeezing the grip because I don't want the racket to come out of my hand or it's twirling in my hand. It's all, you know, all this stuff. And so I'm like, I don't I don't need to have all this tension to keep the racket under control and keep it in my hand. Um, and that. That was a that was a very. uh you know, my my teacher, my coach, uh, Jerry Aline, who we've, of course, referenced many times. Yeah, uh, he taught me that little trick about uh, about the grip and getting people to like feel what's going on between the hand and the grip. You know, like you're you know, you're talking about where the rubber meets the road. Right. In tennis, it's where the hand meets the grip. Uh, Absolutely. In terms of feel. So then, one exercise that I always like to do was whatever shot we're working on, let's just say it's a forehand ground stroke. Let someone hit it as they feel comfortable. And then on a scale of one to 10, grade it on a tension level and call what they do instinctively a five. So they're right in their comfort place, right in the middle. And then I actually have them go in the wrong direction for a couple and ask them to squeeze tighter like a seven or eight. Mm. And then I bring them back down to five and then into the territory I like them to get to, a two or a three. And so many times it's like, oh my goodness, I had no idea it could be this easy to hit the ball. So right. that's a simple one that uh, any of our students could sort of do on their own while they're playing is pay attention to that particular part of the shot. 
give yourself a five and then consciously move around a little bit and see how it's working for you. Yeah. And I think it's, it's remarkable how, uh, when you do, um, a drill like that, which is very, very good. Um, all of a sudden when you're going down to that three or to that two and you're swinging, the ball is like coming off like a rocket from your racket head because that looseness and that lack of pressure from your grip is allowing for an acceleration of the racket head, which is the only way that a tennis ball gets its velocity is the acceleration of the racket head from the player. So whether you use just your arms or you use a combination with your legs or whatever you do, uh, and you should do those things uh, properly to maximize the uh, acceleration of the racket head without needing any extra effort. There is effort, but there's no superfluous efforts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if, if everyone, I mean, if you just think about it in terms of our whole discussion today, on the volley, there is either very little or zero follow through, depending upon um, how you're being taught. Uh, but that means that the racket is not accelerating into the ball. And we said the grip is the tightest on the volley at impact. So if you're squeezing too tightly on the other shots where we do want some acceleration through the ball, you're actually working against yourself by squeezing too tightly and slowing down the racket rather than letting it go and accelerating through the point of contact. So it's a real contrast there between the feel of the volleys and the ground strokes in terms of letting it go. Just one other quick fine point I'd want to get your thoughts on, Scott, was when you played a big server and you were returning, did your tension level on the return change at all in that situation compared to a regular ground stroke? Um. You know, I, I don't think that it did, Bob. I think that the thing that I looked to do when it was a big serve was to, uh, you know, adjust the backswing and get a shorter backswing and make sure that I was matching up and getting the racket um, set up for so that the ball would hit the center of it. Uh, and then I would follow through, but it wouldn't be like a loopy follow through. If somebody's serving like it, you know, one... 110 you know maybe ricky meyer was serving sometimes at like 120 mm -hmm. um, i wouldn't you know i wouldn't be like looking to finish uh you know over my shoulder and whatever i would maybe abbreviate uh and go to like 80 percent and make sure that it was like a more compact swing as players do in golf too um they adjust the backswing, but they do adjust how far they go through. But there has to be a follow through. Uh, a lot of people think that you just block the ball back and use like a blocking motion where it's almost like a volley when you get it at impact. Yeah, that's a big that's a big mistake, because even though you might be able to be successful uh, with some of those shots, you're really not um, you're not de delivering your line of energy to your target. And the control of the of the shot is uh, definitely uh, catch as catch can when you start to try to just block it. 
Uh, you still need to follow through and go to your target. You just do it in like a different way than when the ball doesn't have all that excessive speed. Okay. So um, given that, let's let's look at a player who I think you know pretty well, Stan Wawrinka. A lot of our listeners know him well too. Yeah. He waits on return of serve with a pretty extreme backhand grip mm -hmm. so that if you serve there, he's coming Ready. over it with topspin. But yeah. if you serve to his forehand, doesn't he just sort of block it back in the court? I know he's changed it a little bit. He's tried to hit a few more than he used to, but he still, a lot of times when push comes to shove, goes to more of a volley-like motion on that return. Um. You know, I can't say that I remember uh, observing him so much on the on the forehand like that. Um, maybe because I was watching his his backhand so much or whatever, and I, in, and in my mind, I wasn't really. Uh, so I have to um, I'll have to check that out. Maybe go on YouTube and uh, see a match where he played someone who has a big serve and see what he did. Well, there was another great example in one of the recent Grand Slam finals where Berrettini played Djokovic, and in the deuce uh, court, Djokovic served and volleyed like at, 25 at times. At Wimbledon? Yes. And Berrettini kept blocking it back, and Djokovic kept putting away the volleys like he was a world-class volleyer. So I hear actually what you're saying, like, if you're just going to block it back and the opponent knows what they're doing, they're going to make you pay a big price. He he won virtually none of those points, and there were like 25 of them, which mm -hmm. you could say that was enough to swing the service games much more comfortably in Djokovic's favor. So yeah, um, it would have been nice to see him abandon that tactic and, and try to go for a little bit more and play a different game there on defense yeah i mean uh he was playing not to lose on that one and that you can't do that against Djokovic. no no Djokovic killed him in that match like right yeah yeah really easy <laughs> so did you find just one final thing on our theme of feel um did you find or did you in your match preparation, did you do any stretching that systematically got your body in a more relaxed, less tense posture before heading out on the court? Well, yeah, I mean, um, I think the good thing that a good thing to do is to get alone uh, and off to the side. So you're not watching other players come into the facility or whatever and getting distracted and uh, just do some breathing and, you know, maybe get in a sitting in a relaxed position and you could even like close your eyes, almost like some players, they like to do a little meditation yes. um, and just get in touch with, you know, and, and try to, you know, just feel what's going on in your shoulders and your hands in your, in your legs and just do a little bit of that. Like, you know, people, people know who, uh, do meditation and yoga and whatever they, they they know how to do that so i mean i used to just to get you calm down and sort of centered uh for the beginning of the match yeah i would actually do yoga and i was like it was about a 20 minute routine before i would play and i was 
like night and day, two different players out there because I was much more in touch. I was more flexible because I had loosened up, but right. mentally also I was much more agile and in touch as well. Scott, great to get together over the holidays. Listeners, Thanks, Bob. next time we'll be back uh, with a report from the Australian Open. Big time tennis coming up, and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast on cooking and tennis. <laughs> Sounds good, Bob. Thank you, Scott. All right, until next time.